Hey there, you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. This is The Big Tent. I am your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-host, Luke Fowler. Hey, Luke. Hey, Jen. Corey Cook couldn't be here today, so you are uh, going to be listening to us. This is a a busy news day, so we're going to make a last-minute adjustment to our agenda and fit in a discussion of the EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt's resignation at the end of the show today. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But first, um, here on The Big Tent, we are going to be talking about the intersection of business and politics. So if you've been following the news lately, you have probably seen some really interesting stories in which consumers are increasingly voting with their dollars and putting a lot of pressure on businesses in the form of boycotts and boycotts. So, um, Luke, you have a cu- couple of good examples to talk to us about that, uh, where uh, consumers are bringing quite a bit of political pressure to bear on businesses. Well, yeah, there's been uh, certainly a, a lot of very interesting examples that have gone on in the last couple of years. Uh, probably one of the most famous ones has been either uh, Chick-fil-A and the gay marriage issue, where a lot of people banned them after they were very vocal about their opposition to gay marriage. Um, Chick-fil-A is a very religious uh, brand, uh, so they, they focus very hard on that. Um, the other one in kind of that same uh, area is Hobby Lobby and their opposition to providing uh, contraceptives through their uh, health insurance plan. Um, but, you know, more interestingly, uh, and I guess in the last couple of months, is some of the things that have happened after Charlottesville, um, the, the massacre there, or at least, I guess some of the violence that went on there. Um, and so when you, you look at, uh, say, Delta um, Airlines, they came out and really rebuked the president and his response there um, were very harsh. Um, and that was, you know, our direct entrance of that of that brand into um, politics. Um, so there was a lot of pushback there, which was really interesting. And I think a lot of people are, are terming this uh, CEO activism. Um, I think one of the more interesting cases, though, is Yeti. Um, Yeti coolers. Um, well, for those who don't know, they they make a high end brand of cooler um, that's very popular amongst uh, outdoorsmen, uh, hunters, fishers, this kind of group. Uh, and so, in the last couple of months, uh, Yeti essentially ended its uh, benefits package with NRA members. And as the way I understand it, if you were an NRA member, you got some special privileges and discounts with Yeti coolers. So they ended this relationship. Um, and so Yeti has said publicly, this was just normal business operations. We just ended this relationship. We didn't want to pursue it anymore. NRA has framed this differently. And they've come out and said, no, 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 this is all about politics. Yeti does not support your gun rights. They don't support us. So that's why they ended it. Now, as a re- result, Yeti has really gotten pushback from its base, which is those hunters and fishers, those you know, big, strong Second Amendment gun rights activists. Um, interesting, though, uh, you know, I read that a, a local Idaho brand of cooler, uh, Cordova, has uh, said that their sales increased by 25 percent in the last quarter. And they credit Yeti for this, that people are buying their brand and boycotting Yeti as a result. Um, so I think this is a really interesting case because the company is saying one thing and then you have political af- activists and NRA saying this is something completely different. So uh, a much more subtle way of, uh, I guess, framing or, or entering into politics as compared to what, you know, uh, Delta and some of these other brands have done. Yeah. And just to back up a little bit on both of those cases, I, I mean, to reiterate your point that it seems like some of these uh, boycotts are a way for um, culture wars to be acted out through boycotting particular businesses. So if we go back to the Delta Airlines case, this was following, there was a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, there were a number of white supremacist 
groups, the alt-right that showed up. Um, and uh, it was a two-day rally. They, uh, you probably saw images in the news of folks who were uh, in the rally carrying tiki torches uh, at the, on the University of Virginia campus on the Friday night. And then the Saturday, the rally ended with quite a bit of violence. And in fact, one of the uh, counter-protesters there, Heather Heyer, was uh, hit by a car by somebody in the alt-right. And he was recently... Um, uh, I think uh, is being charged with some hate crimes at the federal level. So uh, as a result of that, President Trump came out and um, he did eventually condemn the alt-right and the protesters, but he also made some equivocating comments along the way, saying things like um, there were fine people on both sides. And he's been pretty quick to point out that those on the left, known as the Antifa, uh, were also violently protesting or counter-protesting the alt-right. And so as a result of that, there was quite a bit of cultural outcry. And if I remember correctly, correctly, his entire he had sort of an advisory board of CEOs, and many of those folks resigned after that. And so it's within that context that the Delta Airlines uh, decision was made, I think, right? So that's sort of the that case. Um, and then in the uh, the other case, uh, with the Yeti and the NRA, this is following some of the sort of horrendous school shootings that we have seen. Is that right? Yes. And there's been some great, uh, well, they're not great. <laughs> they're fun to watch. YouTube videos of sort of women with uh, high-powered <laughs> rifles of shooting Yeti coolers and things like that. So it's become a symbol, I think, of conservative protest or push pushback against uh, restrictions on the Second Amendment. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things to consider when, when it comes to this debate are these uh, are these now like really morally, socially conscious CEOs following their conscience and, and doing what's right, or are these just shrewd businessmen that are looking at you know the market and going, you know what, I can sell more stuff if I cut ties with this, if I if I align myself with the right wing or the left wing, is this a business move? Um, you know, it's interesting because I've seen good arguments on both sides of why this is these are shrewd economic moves, but I've also seen good arguments for why this is just morally conscious CEOs. And so I think that that begs, you know, a big a big question about what we expect out of businesses when in twenty eighteen. Do we expect them to make money or do we expect them to, you know, advocate for social and political positions? Like what is their role in our public society? Um, and that's, you know, kind of a, a big tough question that we're gra- uh, grappling with and a lot of people are trying to figure out as they try to manage their businesses. It also seems like it's contributing further to the sense just that things are increasingly polarized, right? And that even where you choose to, I mean, we've always had boycotts and boycotts, especially maybe on the left more so than on the right. Um, Those have always been part of American political culture, but it seems like even more so now companies have to be really aware of politics and where sort of their consumer base is is moving on particular issues. Yeah. And I mean, that that kind of puts business in a a difficult position because even when they are like, you know, we want to be apolitical, when they don't take strong stances, they get accused of not being strong enough, right? If if you're not against something, you're for it, right? And that can, they're really getting, uh, you know, hamstrung. And there's a lot of, you know, corporations that don't want any part of it. They just want to do their business and be left alone. And they're being put in this to pick sides. Um, so it's a really difficult time, uh, this polar- polarization that's going on, and it's really dividing businesses about what they're going to do. Okay, great. Well, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the flip side of the coin and talk about uh, instances in which businesses have been sort of the first actors and have been um, 
sort of sites where um, they've critiqued public officials and their policies and politics. So when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. Unexplained bacon. Radio Boise. It's like bacon for your ears. Hi, you're listening to The Big Tent with Luke Fowler and my co-host, Jen Snyder. And so today we're talking about uh, the politics of businesses and accountability in uh, American politics. Um, and so if you were listening to the last segment, we talked a lot about how you know political polarization and, and politics has driven and, and forced businesses to make some decisions and take some political stances. But now let's talk about the flip side of that. Um, where we are seeing that you know businesses are becoming very proactive in deciding who they want their customers to be based on politics. So rather than you know people, the citizens out there forcing businesses in directions, businesses forcing themselves based on politics. And there's been a, a couple of uh, interesting examples here. Um, Jen, if you want to talk pick, talk to us about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the most obvious one that's probably on everybody's mind is the wedding cake example that just went through the Supreme Court, where there was a baker in Colorado who refused to make a cake for a gay couple's wedding. So we see examples of that. We've also seen examples of folks, uh, you know, I guess it's not a business, but in public uh, service refusing um, to sign or um, to give out certificates of marriage, for example. Um, And then the most recent example that I can think of with a business would be the Red Hen example where Sarah Huckabee Sanders was in uh, having dinner with some folks and the owner of the restaurant said that she couldn't um, allow her to stay and I think very cordially asked her to leave and Sanders very cordially responded that she would and then later tweeted um, that she was pretty offended by the whole event. So those are sort of two fresh examples on on my mind anyway. Well, and I recently read a uh, interview with the owner of the Red Hen in Virginia about, you know, the exact kind of calculus that went in when she asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave. And so interesting, it it seemed that there was kind of two components to that. One is, you know, she, the owner immediately notes that she works in a county that voted overwhelmingly against Trump. So she seems to be very aware of the optics of having somebody like Trump's press secretary in her very small restaurant in a very small town. Um, and realizing that, you know, that could potentially turn off some of her client base. Um, you know, and the other thing she notes is her staff that were very uh, pro, like very anti-Trump. Um, she notes that a lot of them uh, are gay and that really influenced them. And so she went to the staff, um, basically conflicted about what to do, and they all voted overwhelmingly to ask her to leave. Um, so it's very interesting that, you know, as a business owner, I, I think she wasn't sure what she should proceed with, but she felt like she was really getting pushed in that pushed in that direction by both her employees and her client base, that if she served Sarah Huckabee Sanders, that there was going to be reper- repercussions. Um, and so that's a very interesting position for you to be in as somebody who just wants to run a restaurant. And the fallout was really swift, right? Like, of course, anytime something like this happens, a bunch of Yelp reviews get posted, um, both for and again. So this is the worst restaurant ever, zero stars. This is the best restaurant ever, five stars. And then, of course, there's another restaurant that's pretty close to there, also called the Red Hen, that's been receiving a lot of abuse. I think they've had the um, the original Red Hen had manure thrown at it. So <laughs> there's been a lot of activist responses since then. And I don't think they have reopened unless it happened in the last day or two. But my understanding is that they remain closed um, sort of until things die down a little bit. So interesting examples of the, of the fallout of making these kinds of choices, especially when they get covered nationally. 
Well, and of course, like this is an example of, you know, as a business that you're either for or against, right? You serve her dinner and you're a Trump supporter, or at least that's what the optics, that's what the, the local newspaper and the tweets are going to say, or you ask her to leave and you're against. And so, you know, as a business, like what, what decision does that leave you to make? Um, you know, and another uh, interesting example that actually just happened yesterday was uh, James Woods, uh, talent agent, dropped him. Um, and the email, or I guess the email that uh, he tweeted out, and as it said, uh, his talent agent said, I'm feeling very patriotic today, so I'm going to ask you not to be my client anymore, uh, something along those lines. And, and basically equivalenting uh, all of this to the fact that, you know, he's a patriot and he's a liberal. And so he doesn't want to represent James Wood, who's very conservative and a very outspoken advocate for Trump, um, which is even more interesting to that extent, because this is somebody who's actually paid to represent James Wood's interests. And so he's decided that he can't do that anymore in good conscience. Well, it seems like all of this is taking place within the larger discussion around civility towards um, public officials, too. So there's this connection between businesses making choices about based on their politics. Um, but also it's getting rolled up in the sense of, like, should we be going after public officials in public places? So I can think of recent examples where Stephen Miller, who's a, a White House advisor, or Kirsten Nielsen, who's... Um, Department of Homeland Security, head of Department of Homeland Security. They've been approached in uh, restaurants and sort of been yelled at by activists who disagree with their policies. So it, it seems like there's this um, just a heightened sense on the left that these things cannot go unchallenged and a heightened sense on the right that like the left has lost their minds and are not being civil. Um, and that they should be. So how, where's your thinking on sort of this question of are these, is this civil behavior? Is there a place for this kind of behavior? What are we seeing? You know, it's an interesting question, um, whether or not uh, we can leave, like, if you don't like something that's going on, like, what are your responsibilities to check it? But I also think there's an important question about, like, when being engaged crosses the line into harassment, right? Um, and I think there's a, a, a big difference there. Now, interestingly, and not to jump ahead to our last segment, uh, Scott Pruitt was approached by a teacher this week and asked to resign. But that took on a lot of, like, a very different narrative for the most part because she wasn't harassing him for the most part it seemed like they had a very cordial interaction and he just she just said i want you to resign and there wasn't anything you know to do about it it was just you know an, a conversation between the two adults but some of these other cases um were very aggressive very threatening to a certain extent um so i, I think there's a, a way that we can do this and you can check but not be harassing um, and so that ends up, you know, some kind of begs some uh, other questions here. Now, you know, of course, one of the very interesting cases, and we've talked about this previously, is uh, Alan Dershowitz, mm -hmm. um, who wrote a very uh, interesting op-ed uh, recently about essentially being ostracized from the social circles on Ma uh, Martha's Vineyard. This um, is the famous attorney. Yes, uh, the Harvard Law attorney that, uh, I mean, extremely, maybe one of the greatest legal minds in America. Um, and he has come out and been very pro-Trump, very freedom of speech supportive, even though he claims to donate a lot of money to Hillary Clinton and to have voted for. But he says, you know, the, the social elites on Martha's Vineyard don't want to hang out with him anymore. Um, they don't like him because he supported Trump. And now he doesn't feel like he's part of that, that group anymore. And so you can definitely, I, I would say the tone uh, is somewhat bitter to a certain extent, mm -hmm. um, some sour grapes associated with that in the editorial. But it is, uh, you know, an interesting question. I think Definitely on you know the micro level, individual level, that's something that's going on where a lot of people have stopped being friends with people that uh, you know on Facebook or even in social circles because of their political opinions now. And I don't, I don't think that's a good thing for our political discourse in America. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the counter argument from the left is, um, of course, always, but what's happening from policy perspective is not civil either, right? So sort of immigrant children in cages deserves an equal, uh, equally strong uh, and vociferous response. Um, and I think, of course, if we look at the Red Hen case, by all accounts, that happened in a very civil manner. There was no yelling um, on either side. We can think about NFL players kneeling. That's a fairly civil uh, response um, to what they see as a significant social issue, which is police violence against black men in this country. So it becomes very muddied, right, figuring out what is civil, what constitutes positive civic engagement, and what doesn't. Um, these aren't easy easy lines to draw. Well, and I think there's also something to be said about, um, you know, avenues for actual political engagement on those is- issues. And I think well, what you see is when we get to this uncivil area, it typically is coming from people that really don't have any other avenues to do to, to communicate their point. So it's very easy for Sarah Huckabee Sanders to be civil because she has opportunities to go out there and make a change. And typically when you see people doing something kind of crazy, like the Internet warriors, you know, that are going out and doing these things, it's because they don't have any other place. Right. And so it's people. And I think there's a lot of people in America right now that feel very much disenfranchised from the system. And they feel like the only way to really make a point is to go out there and do something very dramatic and aggressive. Um, And that's why we're getting here. And that's certainly not a good thing for our society. Um, I'm not really sure what the solution is, though, because I mean, certainly these are the same people that I would argue probably don't vote, uh, probably aren't engaged with their political party on the uh, on the local level, but are spending lots of time blogging and talking in chat rooms with people that are like-minded and they kind of build up these issues for more than what they're worth. So it's interesting how a lot of this gets distorted when we take it away from actual professional politicians and actual professional public advocates, like how murky this gets very quickly. All right. Well, just a few hours ago, it was announced that the administrator of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, had resigned. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that breaking news in the next segment. Stay tuned. Hello, this is Justin from the Random Canyon Growlers, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond. Welcome back to the Big Tent. This is Jen Schneider, and I'm here with Luke Fowler. Before the break, Luke, you mentioned that Scott Pruitt, um, who's the the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, was actually approached in a restaurant a few days ago by a mom carrying her toddler son, I think, who she had sort of seen that he was in the restaurant, and she wrote some notes saying things like, I want you to meet my son. He likes clean air, he likes clean water, and he's going to inherit this planet." So that's a terrible paraphrase of her much more eloquent speech, which you can probably find on YouTube or Twitter now. And then we find out this afternoon that Scott Pruitt, um, in a a letter submitted to President Trump, resigned from his position as administrator. It's a really interesting letter, actually. You should uh, recommend everybody uh, go online and read it. Um, You might be aware that Scott Pruitt has received a lot of attention for his evangelical beliefs, and the letter um, is really framed in those terms, that it's been a privilege to uh, bless President Trump and his actions and to pray for his uh, to pray for his uh, presidency. So it's it's worth a read if you have time. But I think it does uh, beg the question, do things like what we've been talking about today, for folks, sort of everyday folks approaching some of these public officials in public and asking them about their policies, does that work? 
You know, that's a good question. Um, I think when it's done correctly, it, it probably weighs on their conscience. Because, I mean, at, at the end of the day, and as much as I think the left likes to vilify people like Scott Pruitt, these are still people. Um, and, and I imagine those kind of interactions, if he's on the fence about what he should do anyway, probably factor into his calculus, even or just a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's worth talking a little bit about uh, Scott uh, Pruitt's tenure uh, at EPA. So, um, interestingly, he's probably the most successful cabinet secretary in terms of actually carrying out Trump's agenda. He has done a... Uh, I'll say a great job uh, from the perspective of Donald Trump in terms of deregulation. He's pulled back a lot on a lot of, uh, you know, the Clean Air Act and a lot of other things. A lot of Obama era regulations and rulemaking, he's done a great job of that. Um, so very successful in those terms, very well received by industry, very well received by, you know, the, the right wing. On the other side of that, he has caused a lot of scandals as of late. Um, and, and I will note that since he came into office, he has been uh, embattled by the left. Um, so you can kind of take that with a grain of salt. And so typically when you're, you know, a Republican cabinet official, you expect so much pushback from the left is when the right starts pushing back on you, you know, you're in trouble. And so a lot of that's come from, uh, you know, these scandals, this mismanagement that, that's gone on, uh, gone along. Uh, so I've read that he has had, uh, he spent three and a half million dollars on a personal security staff um, that because he's re- received a unprecedented level of threats, which nobody seems to be able to substantiate. Yeah, they can uh, substantiate it, but we do have anecdotal evidence that he he was being approached while flying coach quite a bit, and people were telling him what they thought of him. So yeah. now he, he has flown mostly first class since then. Which has cost about $100,000 in additional expenses mm-hmm. for the taxpayer. Um, he spent $50,000 on a soundproof booth. It was $43,000. Dollars oh. and that was illegal. It was never approved. Yes. Yep. Um, so we can go <laughs> and on. a fancy desk. Yeah, we can go. Desk. We can go on and on. But you know, some <laughs> of the the most egregious things. Um, you know, really related. And, and of course, there's the the fifty dollar a night condo that really oh, yeah. smelled uh, of corrupt. I mean, he's living in a, a very expensive, very nice condo, and he's paying fifty dollars a month to in, two people in Washington D.C. Yeah, yeah, and if anybody knows what uh, real estate prices are in Washington D.C., you'd be shocked by that number. And owned by the wife of an energy lobbyist. Yes, and yeah. so there's there's no form of corruption that's going on there. But you know, so. Uh, <laughs> One of the, the, I guess, one of the more interesting things that's come out recently is his secret schedule mm-hmm. um, where he's not officially noting that he's meeting with industry lobbyists, that he's meeting with all these executives to talk about politics and policy, but he's not noting it and he's not reporting it. So you're talking about transparency and accountability. And again, you get in a very like dangerous place. But, you know, there's all these other things about the way he's managed EPA. Um, supposedly he had EPA staff going out trying to find his wife a job. He had him uh, tracking down how he could buy a mattress from one of the Trump International Hotels. He did. He wanted a Trump mattress. Uh, supposedly he also wanted lotion from a Ritz-Carlton hotel. Um, you have And you have former EPA uh, staffers that essentially were dismissed for challenging him have gone to Congress. And it was like, he is absolutely using EPA staff for personal purposes. So it, it, it's interesting that you know, success like policy wise, he's been very successful. It is just what bridges on corruption, right? That that's right there for him mismanaging staff, for him taking advantage of taxpayer resources that have been his downfall. Um, and I think that's an important note because in this administration, where they have done very poorly in managing scandals from a communication transport uh, perspective. Typically, your most successful candidate or cabinet secretaries, most successful officials are the ones that don't end up in the news. Um, And Scott Pruitt was in the news way too much for not good things. Yeah, and it's so surprising because he really was effectively implementing the deregulatory agenda. I mean, I think the left and in particular the environmentalist left has just been driven crazy by him. I mean, he basically has taken wish lists 
from coal executives and implemented almost every single one of them, including rolling back the clean power plan, which was um, a sort of Obama-era set of regulations that was really intended to reduce CO2 pollution from coal-fired power plants. That is set to be rolled back, I think, almost completely. Um, and uh, environmentalists have also been really upset that he has primarily only met with industry, oil and gas, and coal industry uh, executives, whereas uh, I think Obama was accused of meeting primarily with environmentalists. Um, but if you look at those logs, they met with a lot of different stakeholders. The Obama administration did. Uh, Pruitt has not. Um, and at the same time, I think he's gotten nothing but praise from industry executives. But as you said earlier, there's been this steady drumbeat of sort of just malfeasance and sort of stupid uh, mistakes that look a lot like corruption. And the right now, including a lot of high profile um, Congress people, have said, well, we like what he's doing from a policy perspective, but we wish he would stop messing up. And I think once you get enough of that bad press, even though Trump is known for thinking most press, even bad press is, is good press, right? Any press is good press. I think Trump has shown that he does not like it when his cabinet officials are in the news for things like this. Well, yeah, yes, absolutely. And I think it's really showing um, Trump's communication shop. And if you saw the news also that he has hired a former Fox co-president, um, I do not remember his name, but the former, who was uh, Roger Ailes, right-hand man, to now be his uh, communications uh, or White House communications director, um, who that spot has been empty for months following the resignation of Hope Hicks. And, you know, since the beginning of this, their communication shop has been abysmal. They've had tons of turnover. They've had a lot of trouble. But, I mean, this is, uh, again, an example of this administration not being able to control the narrative, right? Um, there's definitely been scandals surrounding this for a lot of other cabinet sector secretaries throughout history. But this has not been managed well. And so it has just been hitting Pruitt week after week. Every time he shows him the news, it's for a scandal and not for a victory. Um, and so that narrative is really what dragged him down. And, you know, it's interesting because on the back end, like he is doing real, like exactly the type of policy work that everybody wants. He just can't seem to stay out of trouble. So the narrative around him isn't success at all. So our advice to those remaining cabinet secretaries, Zinke and Purdue, would be to keep your head down. <laughs> All right, folks, that's it for us today. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you had a great 4th of July, and we will talk to you next week.